Good evening, everyone. Chris is on his way to Tennessee to speak at the Freed Lectureship, and he's going to get to visit his kiddos along the way. So I get the opportunity to share the message with you this evening, and I'm always really excited to get to do that. So it's good to have you all here. What's the worst thing in your house to clean? Almost 10 years ago, something really special happened to me that I want to share with you all. I was chosen as the recipient of some sort of magical spell where the house cleans itself when I'm not looking. (laughs) I can leave dirty clothes in the hamper and they show up on the hangers each Monday and Thursday. I can leave an empty soda can in the living room and the next day when I come home, it's gone. The kids can color with markers on the kitchen table and if I leave it long enough, it disappears. It's an amazing phenomenon. I've even pushed things to the limit. If I leave the trash full long enough, guess what? It eventually disappears and replaces itself with a fresh and empty bag. Old food in the refrigerator, okay? That's that's a tough one. If I leave it long enough, the Tupperware containers empty themselves, clean themselves out, and put themselves back in the cabinet where they came from. Can throw a jacket on the couch when I get home, and if I'm patient enough, it almost always ends up back in the closet. And I'm sharing this with you because I've tried to talk with Brianna about it, and for some reason, she gets really mad at me every time. (laughs) I do have to admit, there's one thing I haven't been able to figure out, and that is soap scum on the bathroom tile. It seems like the longer we leave it, the worse it gets, and there is not an easy solution. (laughs) I thought scrubbing bubbles was going to be it. Y'all have seen the advertisements for scrubbing bubbles, haven't you? You're supposed to spray it on, and you wait a bit, and then you just wipe it off, just like that. And, and maybe that works on Pinterest, but in real life, what you end up with is a bathroom that temporarily smells better, and a slightly polished layer of soap scum, sore muscles from scrubbing, wrinkled fingers from all the time and water spent trying to mop up the mess of bubbles, and a trash can full of paper towels for the trash ferry to carry away. <clears throat> I have watched hacks on YouTube. I bought a little spinning Dremel tool thing that I knew would be the magical answer. I've tried different scrubbing pads, the brushes, and I'm convinced that the easiest solution is to do a bathroom remodel every 10 years and shut the door when the guests come over. If only there was a magical shower tile cleaning fairy. We'd love for things to be easy, don't we? If we walk down the aisle of any cleaning, um, or the cleaning aisle of any store, there are numerous products on the shelves that claim to be the magical solution to any problem that lays ahead of you. In fact, almost all of the marketing of products centers around explaining how they're going to make your life better, and that almost always means that they want to tell how it's going to make your life easier. So we have drive-through car washes and cell phones with internet and email and software that claims it can magically teach you a second language and curbside shopping where you don't have to get out of your car and services where people bring your fast food to you. We are obsessed with easy. So Jesus is really speaking our language at the end of our key text this evening. Let's read it together. Matthew chapter 11 verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. 
Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. This text is right up our alley. You can browse the internet and see article after article touting this verse as the ultimate invitation to Jesus. It's almost treated like an infomercial for Christianity. Are you tired? Are you burdened? Is life tough? Come to Christ and you too can have a life of rest and ease. It's the too blessed to be stressed mentality, the therapeutic approach to Christianity. The idea that following Christ is about improving your experience of life and making you different from everyone else and somehow immune to so much of the heartache and the difficulty that's around us. But this simply isn't true. We can take a quick glance through Scripture and our personal lives and find that following Christ doesn't seem easy and the burden of Christianity isn't light at all. Allow me to let Jesus speak for himself, and, I, and I'll even limit my references to the same book of Matthew, the same author writing to the same audience with the same purpose. Let's look at some of these verses. Matthew 10, 16 through 23. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will, all, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Matthew 16, 24 through 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 18, 8 through 9. And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Matthew 19, 21 through 30. Jesus said to him, if, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Jesus claimed that persecution, public humiliation, and rejection by their family awaited the disciples. They were called to total self-denial, even death. They were told to take drastic measures to eliminate sins from their lives. The rich were told to lay aside their possessions, and the real disciples were willing to give up everything, family and possessions, to follow Christ. In Hebrews 11, we read about the benefits of faith, but then Hebrews 11, 35 through 39, describes what believers had gone through because of their faith. 
It says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In all this suffering, they hadn't even received the ultimate prize yet. To claim this is easy seems pretty disconnected from the experience of the average Israelite or the early believer. So what about your experience? We each have our own personal experiences. You follow Christ, but my guess is that a lot of you still struggle. You struggle with finances, you have health issues, you've dealt with death and divorce and, and pain. A lot of these difficulties are simply a part of life. They face everyone, but following Christ doesn't make them go away. Then in addition to these, these difficulties that everyone faces, as a believer, you have another set of difficulties. You might be excluded from some activities, treated harshly and unfairly because of the things that you believe. We prioritize being together. So that means we might miss out on football games and social events. If you're a parent of a teenager, your kids probably stay mad at you because being together is important. And so you come to church and they pay a, a social cost for this choice that you've made and it makes you feel guilty as a parent. Your schedule is packed and church seems to add another layer. And then there's deeper stuff going on in places around the world that makes all of this seem trivial. They're places where people are legitimately persecuted for their beliefs. Churches where people have been shot and countries where people have been beheaded. Why don't the disciples throw up their hands and say, Christ, can you please explain to us how you can say it's easy and light? You don't even deliver us from the difficulty of the average human experience. In fact, you do the opposite Following you makes things harder. I think we need to dig into our text a little bit this evening, um, try to figure out what's going on. We have already backed up and gotten some big picture context. Something about a surface level reading doesn't mesh with the rest of Scripture or with our personal experience, so there has to be more than meets the eye. So let's look at the immediate context. John the Baptist asked a question in verses 2 and 3 of Matthew chapter 11, and here it is. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? This is the question that really kicks off the entire interaction, and we're going to see several things unfold. First of all, Jesus is going to point John's disciples to the evidence. In verses 4 and 6, we read this, And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus is then going to point the crowd to the evidence. Matthew eleven sixteen through 19 says, But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. 
We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So he has pointed John's disciples to the evidence of miracles, And he's pointed crowds to the same thing, telling them to take note of the deeds, the things that have been done. And next, Jesus is going to condemn those who ignore the evidence. Verses 20 through 24. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. These are really harsh rebukes, and he's about to give us some insight as to why they missed it. You see, next he contrasts those who have rejected and those who have seen and points us to the irony. It's the smart, self-sufficient people who missed it and the simple-minded, basic people who saw it. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And finally, he calls the weary and heavy laden to himself in verse 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So let's back up and put all this together. John the Baptist has shown up declaring the arrival of Christ is imminent. And Jesus has then showed up with powerful miracles of healing and a message of hope to the poor and downtrodden. And and yet there's still a subset of people that are missing it, that are rejecting him. And these dissenters he refers to as the wise and understanding, and he contrasts them with little children. If you'll notice, he had just mentioned children before. They were the ones who played the flute for their playmates, but they wouldn't dance. They sang a dirge for their playmates, but they didn't mourn. The children were the ones who could interpret the signs. They knew that when you heard a happy song, you danced. When you heard a sad song, you cried. And when you saw a miracle, it was from God. It's amazing at how young of an age children can process the emotions of music. You can slow kids down at nighttime with a song, or you can pump them up with Go Noodle. If parents parents know what I'm talking about, they instinctively understand what is being created, what is being communicated with music. And the wise and understanding of this time had lost the ability. Miracles were happening all around them. The signs of the time were as obvious as musical emotions to a child, but they ignored the signs, and they found a reason to ignore John the Baptist and dismiss him, and they had found a reason to ignore Jesus and dismiss him, and they were so tied up in their own wisdom that they rejected the obvious. These were the people who received the woe and denouncement, those who refused to repent. And this is still happening today. The wise and understanding people of society ignore the obvious truth around them. 
They pretend that things like life can come from nothing. They think they have the answer to happiness and self-fulfillment, the pursuit of money and power and sex, and they exert all kinds of energy creating systems of thought that try to get around the idea of God. And instead of using their wisdom and understanding in ways that are obvious, reasonable, and God-glorifying, they use it on themselves. They point their efforts inward, and they begin to shoulder the burden of life on their own. They begin to shoulder the burden of cultivating their own life worth living. They become responsible for creating their own joy and their own satisfaction. And as they fail, they try harder, and they fail and try harder. And so the spiral goes. Romans 1, 21 through 25 paints the picture like this. For although... For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. When you exchange the truth of God for a lie and try to become your own God, oh, the burden you bear. But Jesus was talking to Israelites here, wasn't he? They were believers, weren't they? Well, they were believers of a sort. In theory, they believed in God. But their teachers were so conceited and confident in their own wisdom and understanding that their view of God had been twisted into something false. Their God had become a harsh taskmaster who required intricate keeping of the law, who had little room for grace, and who was to be revered and understood through the lens of the learned and the priest. This is the God that the leaders presented to the people, and under this impossible load of strict behavioral standards, of strict ritual and sacrifice and law-keeping. They were were shuddering and they were about to break, and these were the weary and heavy-laden, the people in the pew who could never live up to the standard, the people in the pew who could never know enough and never be enough and never understand enough. And Jesus looked out among the crowd, and he beckoned these people, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus wasn't trying to tell them that life was going to be easy. Sin made life difficult back in Genesis chapter 3, and it's been that way ever since. Jesus wasn't trying to tell them that following him would be easy. He says the opposite in many places. Jesus was saying that his commandments are easy. The truth is simple. Salvation is obtainable. Perhaps it could be stated like this. I am not going to force you to earn your salvation because if I did, you would fail. All I ask is that you learn the truth. And once you've seen it, you will find that your burden is light. There is no weight of sin for you to carry, no weight of sacrifice, no weight of law. This stands in stark contrast to the heavy and hard yoke of religious teachers surrounding the people. In their times, it was the Pharisees, but who is it today? 
I think we have two groups. I think on one extreme, we have secular leaders who attempt to find satisfaction in a life apart from God. And I think on the other extreme, we have religious leaders, or any believer really, who expects perfect action, perfect doctrine, or both. And oh, how tempting it is to land at one of these extremes. Either direction gives you an impossible load burden to bear. So on one extreme, we, when we attempt to find satisfaction in life apart from God, we find ourselves uh, trying to catch the wind. Solomon writes of this in Ecclesiastes. He pursues meaning through and purpose through a relentless pursuit of pleasure and possessions and work and wisdom and learning. And each time he finds vanity, striving after the wind. You can see it in Ecclesiastes 2.11. Too many in these days are grasping for this, and the weight of the vanities destroying them. What an impossible burden to bear. But even here among believers, we find another extreme threatening our well-being. The belief that our salvation depends on something we do. We say we don't believe this, but I think we struggle with it. You aren't saved because you showed up to church or because you worshiped correctly when you did, or because you've stayed sexually faithful to your spouse. You aren't saved because you refrain from cursing, or because you give to the needy, or because you serve the church in numerous ways that you do. You aren't saved because of your right belief, your right teaching, your pursuit of social justice. You aren't saved because you've studied and rightly discerned exactly how the theology of salvation should be understood. You aren't saved because of your patience, because of the forgiveness you have extended others, or the kindness to those who hurt. And if you think even a hint of one of these things or many others, then tonight's lesson and Jesus' invitation is for you. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You are saved because Christ did for you what you could not do for yourself. A gentle and humble taskmaster has stepped in and laid before you something that is obtainable. Even by the simplest of the simple, by the average Joe person, by the common man, his invitation is not to a life of ease. It's to a life where the things that really matter are made obtainable and within reach. And all it requires is the humility to hear the invitation. This is what set the children apart from the wise and understanding. Yes, there will be obedience and life changes made when a person places themselves under the yoke of Christ. But the obedience and life changes are not the yoke. Christ is. They are the result of what we learn from the gentle and humble taskmaster and flow from the understanding he gives us. Here's how I like to think of it. The act of putting on the yoke is our justification. This happens when a person believes and puts on Christ in baptism. It's at that point that we become His, that we work for Him and our sins are taken away. The putting on the yoke is the transfer of ownership from ours to His. The burden of working under the yoke, that is our sanctification. 
This is the training we receive and the work that we do as servants of Christ. This happens for the remainder of our life. It isn't what saves us. It isn't even done under our own direction. It's the daily plodding along where Christ tells us to go, plowing for the kingdom, and he feeds us, and he provides for us, and he corrects us, and he trains us, and he encourages us. He is gentle and humble. And through his ownership and instruction, we are slowly purified and directed in what we should do. If you wear Jesus' yoke, you are saved. And the work he gives us to do then becomes your joy. The biggest challenge of Christianity is to humbly submit to him. And if we can do this, all else follows. So knowing this, reading this passage should cause a few responses in you. The first is humility. You can't give yourself the things that you really need, so you can stop trying. The second is calmness and confidence. Maybe I could call it peace. The things that really matter are taken care of, so, so you can rest. And the third is grace toward others. The same offer has been made to others that was extended to us, so we should tread lightly and extend the same gentleness and humility to others that Christ has extended to us. There's only a very small handful of basic requirements for us, and the Bible teaches us the truth about Jesus so we can have faith that he existed, that he was the Son of God, that he was resurrected for our sins. We see the response to faith in this truth is always baptism and adoption into the family of believers, where this process of progressive spiritual growth begins under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and that we call sanctification. There is a wonderful lifetime of sanctification, of learning, and of glorifying God ahead of us, but it isn't our burden. It's our blessing, and we shouldn't get confused about that. If you're not a follower of Christ, <clears throat> you must be exhausted. Rest awaits you, not a life of ease, but rest for your soul salvation that doesn't depend on you. We invite you to make a change and to come forward as we stand and as we sing.